In Paul's letter to the Romans, we hear a marvelous description of God's plan for creation, one that shows an interdependence upon one another so that none can boast of their own success. If one lags, all lag. But if one excels, all excels. This dependence upon one another causes us to see the value in each one of our brothers and sisters and to recognize that we need one another to accomplish the building up of the kingdom of God in this world. The reading today is from Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligent, diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. In our text today, Paul is writing to the Roman congregations, probably small and diverse house churches, because there's strife between them. He urges them to remember that they have to live together, they have to work together, they have to get along. No pettiness or middle school antics will work for them. They must rise above these immaturities and work together as the one body of Christ, where what harms one small part will certainly harm the whole of the body, and where what benefits one part will benefit all. Paul writes of the one body of Christ and how we are all parts of this body, each different but neither more nor less than the other body parts. He writes that God has given us these gifts, and he lists seven of them in this text. Prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhorting, that is urging or encouraging, generosity, leading, and being compassionate, and that we are to use these particular gifts we have to help the whole body function. Members of the body of Christ, that is you and me, are to offer holy and spiritual worship daily by sharing our gifts for the communal good, for the sole purpose of not promoting ourselves, not showing that we're better than other body parts, not earning a lot of money, not working our way up the company ladder, not looking good and attracting a partner or closing the deal, and the list goes on and on, but for the sole purpose of building up the body of Christ. Put another way, 
when our gifts and others' gifts are valued and each member uses their gifts on behalf of the body of Christ as a whole, this is worship. This is a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. The journey of finding where we fit into the body of Christ, am I an elbow, am I a heel, and what role we play is a joyful privilege for Paul reminds us, you used to belong to sin the way a slave belongs to a master. Body, mind, and spirit, you were captive. Now you belong to one another with bodies that belong to the body of Christ, whom God raised from the dead. So now you and I have been transformed. In Paul's day, there were those who counted themselves as Christians, but were shaped by the prevailing values of the world around them in a way that undid anything that Christ might have wanted in their lives. The same is true today, and sometimes it's true for you and me as well. Paul knows about being shaped by the ways of the world. Before his conversion on the Damascan Road, he led a life that was destructive to the body of Christ. But Christ met him on that road, touched him on that road, and transformed him entirely with his call to him. And Paul went from Saul to Paul, from persecutor to pilgrim of faith. His mind and spirit were transformed. So here in this letter, he urges the Romans to engage in a process whereby they are shaped not by the prevailing fashions of the age, but by Christ alone. It is a counter-cultural renewal to which he calls the Romans, because the renewing of one's minds leads not only to individual wholeness, but also to communal wholeness. What affects one body part for good affects the entire body for good. If then we have indeed been renewed, then no more can we look only to our own needs and interests because we are part of a greater whole. We cannot be conformed to what the world tells us is okay because it's not okay if it's counter to what God's will for us is. As Paul wrote to the faithful in Ephesus, we are to put away our former way of life and be renewed in the spirit of our minds and clothe ourselves with a new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Make no mistake, this renewal of our mind is life-changing. It is a radical shift in perception where we can no longer cling to habits and hang-ups taught us by the world. It is a call away from the self and toward the community. It is a call to humility, and yet at the same time, a call to love and value ourselves and one another. And it's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It's a remi reminder that we belong to a greater good, that we are not alone. We do not rejoice alone, nor do we strive alone. We are part of the one body of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is imploring these early Christians living in the Roman realm to not give in to the brokenness of the world around them. He is encouraging them to keep on keeping on in the ways that they have seen exemplified in himself and, of course, even more in Jesus Christ. 
He begs these new believers of all ages, do not be conformed to the world. To be conformed means to follow the rules of the society in which you live, to behave according to socially acceptable standards. And sometimes conformity is a good thing. There is some overlap between what the world finds to be good and what Jesus Christ finds to be good, but it's not a very big overlap. We could think of this as Paul's text against peer pressure. And he's wanting us to take a good hard look at how we live our lives and ask ourselves, what do I feel pressured to conform to? And is it a standard set by God or is it a standard set by humankind? Instead of being held prisoner to conformity, God wants to free us by transforming us. Transformed is one of my go-to and favorite words. To be transformed means to be completely altered, to become more fully what and who God created us to be. You and I have been transformed by the love of God through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And because of this new life, we are given a new standard by which to live. And this standard does not always mesh with the standard of the world around us. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a well-known sermon based on this passage from Romans, in particular the phrase, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. King summed up this powerful text in just two words, transformed nonconformity. King observed how the pressures for cultural conformity to condition our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo are immense. Nevertheless, we followers of Christ have a higher loyalty than mere conformity to society. Our loyalty is to God alone. The challenge for us is to discover ways to live in the world, but not of the world. We should never abandon the world because God wants us to love it and help to improve it, but neither should we completely embrace its ways. King said that most people, even those who call themselves believers, are thermometers that record or register the temperature of majority opinion, not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society. I'm going to read that again. We are thermometers that record or register the temperature of majority opinion not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society. I would guess that many people think that Christians do a little bit better than the rest of the population at living a life worthy of Christ. But social scientists tell us that we're actually only doing about as well as what the mainstream culture is doing. For example, Christians divorce at about the same rate as the general population. We watch the same films and television shows. We read the same books. We give about the same percentage of our income to charity as others who do not profess to be believers and, and so forth. King, along with many, many other theologians, have cautioned the church to remember that it, the church, 
has at times in history stood on the wrong side of the line of grace. And it's true. Historically, the church has at times defended slavery and racial discrimination and economic exploitation, even going as far as to participate, in many cases, in the Holocaust, many passively accepting and endorsing evils merely by not speaking up against them. And today, this continues to happen around the world. This week's lectionary text from the Old Testament book of Exodus provides an example of nonconformity in relation to the powers of the world. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and they were increasing in number and power. And out of fear, Pharaoh gave the order to the midwives that they were to kill all newborn male Hebrews at birth. But the midwives defied the authorities because, the text says, they feared God rather than Pharaoh. Now, nonconformity will not be easy. King was killed for his ideas and his willingness to not conform to the majority culture around him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was another pastor and theologian killed for his ideas. But the ultimate nonconformist was Jesus Christ, who refused to submit to the ways of the church and government of his time, but chose to follow the ways and truth of his father's kingdom. And for this, he was crucified. And because he was willing to die, you and I have life and have it in abundance. The reason I'm talking to you about this today and the reason it's essential for us to talk about this before we go out and make decisions is because when we are surrounded by other people, we don't always make the decisions we intend to make. Sadly, there's often a noticeable difference regarding how we act when we are alone versus when we are in a group. And this is known as the bystander effect. Some of you may have heard of this, and it's alarming. The bystander effect, sometimes called bystander apathy, is a social psychological phenomenon that refers to cases in which individuals do not offer any help to a victim, someone who is in danger, someone who is hurt, someone who is dying, when other people are present. The probability of help is inversely related to the number of bystanders. In other words, the greater the number of people around you, the less likely it is that you will help someone in need. The more people are around you, the greater the chance that you will see a crisis and think to yourself, I don't need to help. This is someone else's problem. There are two major factors that contribute to the bystander effect. First, the presence of other people creates a diffusion of responsibility. It gets watered down. Because there are other observers, individuals do not feel as much pressure to take action since the responsibility to take action is thought to be shared among all of those present. The second reason is because we have this primal need to behave in correct and socially acceptable ways. So when other people around you fail to react, individuals often take this as a signal that a response isn't needed and isn't appropriate. But Paul is telling us 
Sorry, folks, but you've got to act, even when others do not. Ambivalence was not an option for Jesus, and it shouldn't be an option for us either. When we think about the events of the world of late, the brokenness of the world, it's easy to cry out to God, Lord, where are you in all of this? Why don't you do something? And I think that maybe God's response to us might be something like this. I already did something. I created you. Now what are you going to do to make this better? When we look at what Paul is telling the early Christian church, he was saying, look around you. See all this brokenness? Don't allow yourselves to get pulled into it. Don't become part of the problem, part of the evil. Do not be conformed to this world. Rather, be transformed by Jesus Christ to do things that will build up rather than break down the world in which you live. Be a part of fixing the problem. So yes, the world is scary sometimes. Mr. Rogers once said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And indeed, this is true. Here are just a few stories of how people are allowing themselves to be transformed through the love of Christ rather than conform to the ways of the world. After the shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, followed by days of riots, one teacher in North Carolina heard how students in Ferguson who were counting on school to start in order to have food to eat were now going without food because the riots had postponed the start of the school year. Teacher Juliana Mendelssohn came up with the idea of starting a fund on the internet to raise money so that the St. Louis area food bank could feed students and their families until school began, because many children eat their only meals of the day at school. Her goal was $80,000. She raised twice that amount. When the unrest in Ferguson began, many of the residents of the apartments near where the incident happened were unable to get out and buy food and other necessities because of the protests and the roads being blocked. There were families running out of diapers, running out of baby food, running out of their own food, and, and so on. But volunteers came and set up booths outside of their apartments where residents in need could pick up free donations of all of these items. Volunteers grilled hundreds of hot dogs and gave them away to anyone who wanted them, whether they were protesting, whether they were law enforcement, anyone was welcome to eat. Others offered rides to people who, because of the chaos at night, were either unable to get back to their cars or to find a safe way to get home. People opened their homes to strangers to offer them a safe place to be for a moment or for food or just for conversation and reassurance. And during the day, volunteers came out to clean up the streets from the mess and the chaos and the destruction of the night before. As they waited for school to begin, teachers and volunteers set up a school outside the Ferguson Public Library with signs that said, teachers here to teach and students welcome. Some kids were learning math and science 
while others were drawing stick figures of their families and other pictures. Jesus did not conform to the world in which he lived. He rejected the ways the religious leaders classified who was worthy and who was not, who was chosen and who was not. He rejected the way those on the margins were forgotten and made his place firmly in that world of marginalized people so that they would know that the kingdom of God had come for them. Living like Jesus, it's not the only option available to us, but it's the only option we can take if we want to live lives that have been transformed by God. So two paths lay before us today, being followers of the world or followers of Christ, being a part of Christ's body and using our gifts for good or using them for our own selfish ambitions. Which one will you take as you journey through life? How are you going to be the hands and feet of Christ to this world? If we choose to follow Christ, we will take the countercultural route, and there will be times of difficulty and inconvenience, unpopularity, and perhaps even danger, but we'll be transformed by it. I'll close with one of my favorite excerpts, the closing words from Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. I have it on my refrigerator. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Thanks be to God that we have the power to make the choice. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>